I'm going to be meditating on one verse today, Psalm 11911. Psalm 119.11, and before we read God's word, let's pray for help. Pray with me. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it's living, active, powerful, able to transform lives, transform souls. Lord, we pray that your word would have its work now in us. Lord, give us life according to your word. Convict us of sin, lead us to repentance. Give us greater trust in you and in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Psalm 118, verse 11. This is God's word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May God give us ears to hear his word. I'm trying to turn on my flipper. Anyway. The year is 1939. Young and newly wed, Russell and Darlene Diebler have just arrived in Papua New Guinea. They're missionaries and they're hoping to reach the natives there with the gospel, see people converted, plant Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches. Uh, they've only been married for one year when they arrive. Well, things go well enough for the first 18 months. They work on learning the language, learning the culture, building relationships, and doing basically what all new missionaries do when they go into a context that's never heard the gospel before. Yes, the living conditions there are incredibly primitive, especially for Darlene, who's never been outside of the United States. Yes, there are snakes and mosquitoes and crocodiles. Yes, it's unbearably hot, including in the middle of the night. And yes, they face the constant threats of fever and illness. But Russell and Darlene are deeply in love with one another and deeply committed to doing what the Lord has called them to do, namely reach people with gospel. Now, if you know your history, what happened on December 7th, 1941? Anybody know? That's Pearl Harbor Day. That's when World War II began, at least for the United States. What a lot of people don't realize is that the bombing of Pearl Harbor actually triggered Japanese invasions of several other islands in the South Seas. First Guam fell, then Hong Kong, then the Philippines. And on, in, in, September, pardon me, in February of 1942, the Japanese invaded and conquered Papua New Guinea. What took place after that has been described as the rape of Papua New Guinea. Japanese troops killed scores of civilians everywhere they went. Cities were blown up and burned to the ground. The Japanese arrested all the Americans on the island and committed them to slave labor camps. And this included Russell and Darlene Diebler. They were split up at this point, never to see one another again in this life. Russell sent to a men's prison camp, and Darlene sent to a women's prison camp. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Russell. He died a few years uh, after being captured. But Darlene lived through this experience and wrote about it in her remarkable book, Evidence Not Seen. Anybody read this book before? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, I'm actually considering reading it once a year. Um, if you're looking for an extraordinary missionary biography, this, it is in the church library, uh, really good. I read it this last summer during chaplain school, and I read it in four days, which if you know anything about me, I do not read particularly quickly, but I just flew through this book. Quite remarkable. Well, from 1942 until the end of World War II, which was what year? 1945. 
But for four long years, Darlene was confined to this very rough slave, slave labor camp in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. If you're familiar with, say, Corrie Ten Boom and what she went through, uh, this is actually like 10 times worse. No clean water. They're living on rice filled with maggots. They're sleeping on bamboo mats on the floors of the jungle. Absolutely horrific. But here's what happened. Darlene Diebler eventually came to this realization. Uh, you know, the Lord has called me to be a missionary. I thought I was supposed to be a missionary to the primitive tribes of Papua New Guinea. But evidently I was wrong. Evidently the Lord wants me to be a missionary to the hundreds of other American and British ladies that are confined to this prison camp. And that's largely what this book is, just story after story after story of doing what you can to reach people with the gospel in this ladies' prison camp in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Well, what most gripped me about her experience, and the reason why I'm talking about her today, pertains to the time when Darlene Diebler was put into solitary confinement. Some of you might remember this. It was some trivial infraction. I don't remember exactly what it was, but let's say she lost a few bananas or something like that. It was that sort of thing. They locked her in a five-by-five-foot concrete cell for over a month. Minimal food, minimal water. She used a bucket for her toilet needs, and she had no contact with any other human except for the minimal conversation that she had with a Japanese guard underneath the door. Now, many of us would have gone completely insane under such conditions. And Darlene Diebler confesses that she almost did. But what do you think it was that sustained her through this, that enabled her to maintain not only her sanity, but her faith? Any guesses? It was scripture memory. Scripture memory. You see, for her entire life, Darlene Diebler had been committed to memorizing Bible verses. And even though she had no access to a printed Bible anywhere, no interaction with any other believers, uh, she was able to maintain not only her sanity, but also her faith by recalling all the Bible verses that she had been memorizing since childhood. Now, Darlene Diebler's testimony so spoke to me that I recommitted myself to Scripture memory. Um, And for the last six months or so, I've been working literally every day on reacquainting myself with Scripture memory. Uh, I'll tell you just a little bit of my own story. Uh, I was raised in church, and we memorized a lot of verses growing up. I wasn't in Awana, but I was in a program like that, and we memorized a lot of verses. But what happened to me, I think, happens to a lot of people. Uh, they, They start to think that Bible memory is for kids, that we're mature, that we're past the need to memorize Scripture. So honestly, for for about 25 years there, there's a period where I just let Scripture memory kind of fade into the background, kind of embarrassed of that. But thinking through Darlene's example and experience, it moved me to recommit myself to Scripture memory. And like I said, I've been working on it daily. Now, I want you to imagine yourself. If you find yourself in a situation like Darlene Diebler's, how would you do? No access to any printed copy of the Bible, no Bible on your phone, no Bible on your computer, uh, no Bible gateway, no YouTube, no sermon audio, anything like that. Would you have enough Bible stored up in your memory to sustain your faith? Would you have enough Bible stored up in your memory to evangelize others, disciple others? Would you have enough Bible stored up on the hard drive of your brain that you might help others solve their problems biblically? Now, perhaps you're wondering why on earth are we talking about this topic this morning? Well, for at least the last 15 years, we've begun every new year with a sermon on daily Bible reading. If you come here regularly, you'll know this is kind of a tradition. We've talked about the benefits of daily Bible reading, challenges to anticipate, different plans you can use. Uh, We've talked a lot about this. And if you're interested in getting a sermon on that topic, just go to our sermon audio page and look at any of the sermons, the first sermon of the year from any of the last 15 years. They'll give you a lot on the why and the how of reading God's Word daily. 
But to be totally honest, I feel like I've said just about everything I have to say on that topic. So instead this morning, what we're going to do is zero in on one particular way you can get into God's Word on a regular basis. One particular method for letting God's Word just transform and cleanse your heart and mind through Scripture memory. Because of that, let me say a couple of things. First, this sermon is not an attempt to get you to replace your Bible reading plan if it's working well for you. Uh, You know, to quote somebody famous, if your plan works, you can keep your plan. Uh, No, this is not that at all. Uh, Instead, what I'm hoping is that maybe if you don't have a method for getting into God's Word daily, you'll try Scripture memory, uh, maybe for six weeks, and see if you'll start experiencing the benefits of it. Or if you've already got a Bible reading plan that is working for you, maybe just add this as a little supplement. You know, maybe make a, a verse or two a week your goal. That's what I'm hoping for in this sermon. If I can accomplish either of those, I'll be a happy pastor. Now, with all of this in mind, let's look into Psalm 119.11. And from this verse, I'd like us to consider together five truths on fighting sin by storing up the Word of God. Five truths on fighting sin by storing up the Word of God. And as always, our hope and prayer is that God would give us the grace to be doers of His Word and not hearers only. Five truths on fighting sin by storing up the Word of God. You ready? Truth number one, sin is our constant enemy. David or Daniel or whoever wrote this psalm was clear that sin is our constant enemy. Now look at verse 11 again. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now let's first talk about that word sin. The psalmist says the word is key to not sinning against you. So what is sin? Well, in its simplest form, sin is simply disobeying God. It's the breaking of God's commands. It's doing what God says not to do or not doing what God says to do. Think about that if that doesn't make sense. God says do this, and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. God says, have no other gods before me. Whenever we bow to gods of wood, plastic, metal, flesh, that's sin. God says, do not look at another woman with lustful intent. Whenever we do that, either in person, on our computer, on a piece of paper, we sin. God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Whenever we ignore our neighbor, hate our neighbor, manipulate our neighbor, turn the other away when we see them in need, that's sin. And far from being a trivial thing, the Bible is clear that sin is actually a huge problem. One of the catechism questions we had my kids memorize when they were little kids is, uh, what is your greatest problem? And the, the answer was sin. And that's true for all of us, not just little children. Your greatest problem is sin. Either your sin, somebody else's sin, or the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world. Whatever problem you're currently facing, the root is sin. Think about it. What is it that's making you miserable today? What is it that's bothering you today? You think about this last week. You know, that was doggone awful. What is it? In some way, shape, or form, it's connected to sin. Again, not necessarily your sin, but somebody's sin. This is why our lives are so often so sad and painful. This is why you might be feeling pain and misery this morning. It's because our world does not do things here on earth as they are done in heaven. It's sin. This is why our world is broken and doesn't work properly. Think about crime and violence, dysfunctional families, political corruption, social chaos, school shootings that we just can't seem to avoid. They seem, if anything, to be increasing. The explanation for all of that is the fact that we have rejected God and his ways. We've wanted to do things our own way. 
When you look at the news, which be careful there of inundating yourself with too much news because it can be terribly depressing, but about 99% of what's on the news is, in one way, shape, or form, connected to sin. Now, thinking about God's attitude towards sin, realize that God takes sin with deadly seriousness. A lot of people think, oh, God's just, you know, winking up there at sin, doesn't think it's a big deal. No. Sin makes God furious, angry. We're actually dishonoring him every time we disobey him. In this life, God punishes sin with physical death, and this is why one day he'll die. Hey, I know we hate thinking about that, but it's actually healthy to be reminded from time to time that you will one day die. The reason for that goes back in one way or another to sin, not necessarily, again, your sin, but ultimately Adam's sin. Worse than death, sin is what keeps us out of heaven. Simply one single sin, not forgiven, will bar you from heaven forever. Simply one single sin not forgiven, that will earn you eternal punishment in hell forever. That's how serious sin is. And sin is what brought the Lord Jesus down from heaven to die on the cross. Think about that. This sin thing, defying God, is so serious that it could not be forgiven without God himself shedding his blood. Now, if this is what sin is, if this is how serious sin is, then anything that would keep us from sin ought to be about the most precious thing in the world to us, don't you think? Anything which helps us fight this enemy called sin, we ought to treasure and view as the most precious commodity in the universe. Which is what gives verse 11 all the more significance. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, something very important I want you to notice in verse 11 are the tenses, the past tense and the future tense. Notice the past tense and the future tense. He says, I have stored up, what's that? That's past tense. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not. What's that? That's future tense, that I might not sin against you. Why is that significant? That's significant because David or whoever wrote this psalm, he knows that sin is coming for him. It's inevitable that temptations will come. You know, it's not as if sin and temptation was a problem back then, back there, back in Bible times, or back earlier in my life. No, the author of this psalm knows that sin will continue hunting him so long as he's in this present evil age. Sin will never give up. It will never lie down. It will never go to sleep. So long as you live in these bodies of flesh and bone, sin is coming for you. It's like Jesus said in Matthew 24, or pardon me, 26, 41, watch and pray you're not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Honestly, I don't think a lot of people believe what I just said. That sin is continually hunting for you. And again, this is your greatest problem. Uh, your, your greatest problem is not enough money. Your greatest problem is not that there's not enough on TV to watch. Uh, your greatest problem is not that your spouse is so cranky, or your kids are so crazy, or, or that the government is so crazy. No, sin is your greatest problem. And this sin is always hunting you. Now, if David did indeed write this verse, he knows from firsthand experience how sin hunts for people. I mean, think about David. David's the great man of God, the man after God's own heart. And yet, how did sin hunt David? Well, one night he's where he shouldn't be, looks at a woman in a way that he shouldn't look at her. Next thing you know, he's entangled in adultery, entangled in conspiracy. Ultimately, he's a murderer. And that's how sin works. Sin is hunting for you. It's hunting for you today. It, it maybe have snares in place right now that you don't know are coming that are going to snare you this afternoon. It's like the old preacher famously said, 
Sin will always take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Anybody know from experience the truth of that? I'm embarrassed that I do. Realize this is something we need to remember as a church. Sin will always be the constant enemy of this congregation until Jesus comes again. Complaining, division, bitterness, deception, pride. Sin will always be the greatest enemy of the church. And get this, and again, ask yourself if you believe this, but sin in the church will always be far more dangerous than the world outside the church. Now, something very important that I want to emphasize here is that the author of Psalm 119, he already has a saving relationship with the Lord. Please get this. If you don't get this, nothing in this entire psalm uh, will make any sense at all. The author of Psalm 119 already has a saving relationship with the Lord. This is obvious from other verses. He talks about the Lord being his protector, provider, savior, father. He's already been reconciled to God through faith. Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. What this means is that he's not fighting sin in order to be saved. Instead, he's fighting sin because he's already saved. You get that backwards and none of the Bible will make sense. Your entire Christian life will become frustrating, miserable, or you'll become proud and arrogant. No, he's fighting sin not in order to be saved, but because he's already been saved. He's motivated not by some desire to earn heaven or by fear of hell, but out of gratitude for all the great things that God has done for him. And that's a massive distinction. Now, why am I emphasizing this here? Well, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because if you don't get what I'm talking about, you will memorize Scripture for all the wrong reasons. You'll memorize it because you think you're earning points with God or climbing the ladder to heaven or avoiding hell or some such nonsense. If you haven't already been saved, you'll look at all the verses of the Bible just as these rules that the more of them I check off and obey, the more God loves me. But if you really think about it, the... The more you get into the Bible, without a saving relationship with God, with God the Bible just becomes terrifying. Uh, because before you know it, you're like, wait a minute, I can't keep any of these. I, I, that's how the Bible will be without a saving relationship with God through Jesus. The Bible is not this pathway to joy and freedom, but terrifying. That's what will happen to you if you start memorizing Scripture without a saving relationship with God. If you happen to be here this morning and you're not a Christian... You've not yet entrusted your soul to the Lord Jesus? Thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. Maybe consider coming by every Sunday, 1045. Get some free donuts, make some friends. Hopefully we'll model for you what it means to follow Jesus. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, realize that so much of what we're going to talk about this morning regarding memorizing Scripture simply will not make sense. What's more, an awful lot of the Bible simply will not make sense. Until you're reconciled to God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus... You really have no hope of fighting sin. In fact, you're already in the jaws of the lion. And the only hope you have is to right now admit your weakness, admit your helplessness, and run to Jesus and embrace him. And this is why I beg you, before we go any further, I beg you to put your hope in Jesus right now. Right where you're sitting, turn from sin, embrace the Lord Jesus. Believe on his death and resurrection, embrace his loving leadership, and be reconciled to God. Sin is your constant enemy. Sin is always hunting for you like a ravenous lion. But until you turn to the Lord Jesus in repentant faith, you will be utterly helpless, utterly powerless to fight against sin. So turn to Jesus now. 
And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, would like clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus now, and right now be made right with your Creator. Moving on, let's consider a second truth from this verse. Consider, second, how the ability to fight sin does not reside in the natural human heart. Did you know that? The ability to fight sin does not reside in the natural human heart. Now let's look at verse 11 again. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now looking at this verse, the psalmist is clear that something external must be put into the heart if he's going to successfully fight sin. While sin is constantly hunting him, constantly pursuing him, the solution to that isn't to say, look into your heart or to follow your heart. No, it's to take something outside and to put it there, which will then change his heart. Our world loves this idea that our hearts are good and pure and that if we just follow our hearts, all of our dreams will come true. This has been the gospel according to Disney for the last like 50 years. But in order to be victorious over the enemy of sin that is constantly hunting you, don't look into your heart. You're going to find death and bones and all sorts of scary stuff there. Don't search your heart. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. Don't be true to your heart or any such nonsense. No, take something external and put it into your heart that's not naturally there. And realize that in this verse, he's describing somebody who's already a believer. Now, I realize that what I'm saying here is kind of negative, but what you got to get is that this is totally consistent with what the rest of the Bible says about the human heart. The entire Bible portrays the human heart as naturally devoid of any goodness. Worse than that, it actually portrays the natural human heart as actively intent on evil. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. Listen to Mark 7.21. From within, out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's your nature. And let this sink in. Desperately wicked. Only doing evil continually. Full of adultery, covetousness, wickedness. That's your heart, that's my heart by nature. Therefore, to think that I'm going to solve my problems by gazing into my heart? It's the epitome of foolishness. While we are constantly being pursued by this enemy called sin, we don't have the resources within ourselves to fight it. We're like blind men just wandering carelessly through a minefield. We're like soldiers in a war zone without any armor or weapons. We're like desperately sick people in a room filled with infected needles. That's what it is to try to fight sin with the resources naturally within your heart. Now, in case you're wondering why, why are our hearts like this? Again, the Bible goes back again and again to Adam's sin. Adam, the first man, was the father of the entire human race. And when he sinned, he plunged our entire race into sin. And this is why every human baby born since Adam, with the only exception of Jesus, was born with a spiritually dead, spiritually evil heart. You and me included. Just like Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is exactly why American culture can't seem to solve our problems. You ever notice this? I mean, we recognize we've got a lot of problems, and we're pretty good at pointing them out. But again, for some reason, we can't seem to fix them. 
how to get along, how to have happy marriages, how to fix our financial problems, how to fix our immigration problems, all sorts of violence and corruption. Why is it that we can't seem to fix these? Instead, they seem to be getting worse and worse. The reason for that is because, again, we do not have the resources naturally within ourselves to solve these problems. We need to turn to something external, something outside ourselves for hope and guidance. And until our culture does that, I'm afraid things are only going to get worse and worse. Moving on quickly, a third truth. Consider third how the ability to fight sin is found in the Word of God. The ability to fight sin is found in the Word of God. Verse 11, one more time. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now think through the logic here. Sin is our constant enemy, like we've said, always hunting us, always pursuing us. The ability to fight that and to be victorious is not naturally found in us, but must be brought in from the outside. And what is that thing, that substance placed inside that helps me fight sin? It's the word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, something I want you to consider here is the intimate relationship between the Word of God and God himself. The intimate relationship between the Word of God and God himself. If I don't want to sin against God, what do I do but cling to his Word? Just to make the point redundant, notice what Psalm 119.11 does not say. It does not say, I've stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against your Word. That's not what it says. Instead, it says, I've stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's such a connection between God and his word that to sin against the one is to sin against the other. And realize, brothers and sisters, this is our way of interacting with God through his word. Our only way of reverencing God, our only way of following God, our only way of seeking God's guidance is through the word of God. Now, this idea that there's this intimate relationship between God and his word, it actually just makes sense if you think about it. I mean, think back to that time when you were dating your spouse and you received a love letter from that person. How did you treat that love letter? You treated it with incredible respect, incredible care. You probably smelled it, maybe even hugged it, treasured it up, you maybe read it over and over and over again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You did that because you loved the person that wrote the letter, am I right? Well, it's the exact same thing with the Bible. If you love God, you'll love his word. If you treasure God, you'll treasure his word. But get this, if you find the Bible boring, Dull, irrelevant, you find boring, dull, and irrelevant, you see? Your attitude toward the Bible is your attitude toward God. It's like Jesus taught us in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What is your attitude toward the Bible? And be honest here, it doesn't benefit anybody to... Pretend and say, oh, I love the Bible, when you really don't. So be honest. What is your attitude toward the Bible? Do you treasure the Bible like silver and gold? Is it sweeter to you than honey in the honeycomb? Or frankly, do you find the Bible boring, dull, disinteresting, irrelevant? Your attitude toward the Bible is your attitude toward God, and maybe the first step in repentance is recognizing that your attitude isn't what it ought to be. Now, this idea that the ability to fight sin, that it's found in the Word, that's always been the case, even before Adam and Eve's sin. I know that that seems a little bit shocking, but even before sin entered the world and Adam and Eve corrupted everything, they were still dependent on the Word to follow God. You might think, that sounds crazy. 
But think through it this way. Imagine God created Adam and Eve, put him in the garden, created all the trees and the animals and the creeping things and whatnot. But then imagine he said nothing to them, did not give them any words at all. If that had happened, they would have been left totally helpless. I mean, they would have just kind of looked around and be like, what are we supposed to do? They wouldn't have known that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They wouldn't have known that they were to take dominion over creation. They wouldn't have known what trees were okay to eat and which tree to avoid. They were completely dependent on God's word even before sin entered creation. And if they needed God's word, how much more do we now that sin is corrupted by, uh, creation corrupted by sin? Now maybe you're wondering, how is it that God's word counteracts our sin? I mean, what is it about the Bible that does this? Well, there's kind of two parts to that question, and to answer that question. The first is to say that the Bible is not merely the word of men, but it's the living word of God. This is why it's got a power to change your life like nothing else. The Bible is not merely the word of men, but the living word of God. I mean, you might contrast this with like a how-to manual or a mathematics textbook uh, or even something like Wikipedia. You know, it might be interesting, helpful information, but it does not have power residing in it to change your life. Like Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Realize, brothers and sisters, the same power that created the universe out of nothing, the same power that, say, parted the Red Sea, the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead resides in the pages of your Bible. Therefore, by storing up those powerful words in your heart, that can enable you to fight sin. Having said all of that, what we also need to realize is that we do need to combat specific sins with specific portions of Scripture. We combat specific sins with specific portions of Scripture. You need to hunt down and memorize the verses that correspond to where you're at and the temptations you're dealing with if you want to grow and to obey. What do I mean by that? Well, let's imagine you're tempted to anxiety, like many of us, myself included, are and am. If that's the case, you know, memorizing the genealogies, say in 1 Chronicles, it's not a waste of time, but it's not exactly going to help you with your anxiety unless God does something quite unusual. Instead, you find verses and particularly promises that correspond to your temptations and then utilize those when the temptations come. So let's say I'm tempted to anxiety. Again, don't go memorizing the genealogies, but memorize something like Philippians 4.6, which says what? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see what I'm doing? I'm connecting a bit of scripture to my particular temptation. Or let's say you're tempted to covetousness. Memorize Hebrews 13.5, which says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or let's say you're tempted to despair. Memorize a verse like Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, all Scripture is the living, inspired, life-transforming Word of God. All Scripture has the power to give faith and to grow faith. But clearly, certain Scriptures are more relevant at some times than others. So get your nose in the Bible and learn how to connect the different bits of your life to the different portions of Scripture that you need. For again, the ability to fight sin is found in the Word of God. Quickly, fourth truth. Consider how storing up the Word of God in the heart is the key to fighting sin. 
Uh, storing up the word of God in the heart is key to fighting sin. Again, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now let's zero in on that little word, stored up. It's actually one word in the original. I have stored up your word in my heart. Some other translations might use words like hidden or treasured, all the same idea. Now that word stored up, it literally means to hide away like a precious treasure. To hide away like a precious treasure. I actually looked up about two dozen different usages of this term in the Old Testament, and they all pretty much say the same thing. For example, this word treasured up, stored up, it's the exact word that's used of Moses' parents hiding baby Moses so that Pharaoh couldn't find him and kill him. This word translated stored up, it's the word used when Rahab hid the spies in Jericho. This word stored up, it's used in Psalm 27.5 of somebody hiding somebody away so that their enemies can't catch them. And you get the idea, the Bible, we, we treat it like Moses' parents treated baby Moses. Precious, we're going to hide it so that nobody can get it. We treasure the Bible like they stockpiled supplies during the Depression. I treasure the Bible. I hide it lest somebody steal it from me. You get the idea? Now, it's technically true that this doesn't only refer to Scripture memory. I mean, you could probably imagine other ways to store up God's Word in your heart. Additionally, it's possible to memorize Scripture without really getting it into your heart. You know, you can just get all the words right, but it doesn't have any impact on your thinking or behavior. You can kind of quote it like a parrot. But the more I thought about it, the more I concluded that this must at least include scripture memory, if not primarily refer to scripture memory. Why is that? Well, think about the original context. You know, go back with me 3,000 years. Before the invention of the printing press, virtually nobody owned their own printed copy of the Bible. I mean, today, Bibles, you can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. Gideons are giving them out all the time. And, you know, most of us probably have the Bible on our phone. And if that, you know, praise God, all of that is very good. But in Bible times, Bibles were handwritten on scrolls. And these scrolls were unbelievably expensive. These scrolls were kept locked away in synagogues, in the temple. And the more I thought about it, the more I, the thought crossed my mind, probably 90% of believers would never touch a copy of the Bible with their hands. In addition to that, in Bible times, paper was incredibly rare and expensive. I know that today we got paper everywhere. You probably got junk mail on your table at home. I mean, we got, we got paper everywhere. Again, in Bible times, that was not the case. Paper was expensive, it was rare, so you couldn't just say print out a passage of Romans and carry it around in your pocket with you. So in a context like that, when virtually nobody's got a printed copy of the Bible, how then would they hide up God's word in their heart? How would they store it away that they might not sin against God? The only conceivable way is scripture memory through ordinary believers. You know, young mothers, young fathers, children, sons, daughters, fishermen, sailors, shepherds, memorizing what they had heard. And we know, and maybe next week we'll go into this in more detail, but we know that in the weekly synagogue, they read an enormous amount of scripture. You know, you think we... People have commented before that we read a lot of scripture in our services. We generally read about two chapters. Historically, the synagogues read between six and ten chapters every single week. They actually had this program where they'd go through the entire Pentateuch once a year. So if you're reading that much scripture every year, over time it's going to sink into you and you're going to memorize it. Additionally, we know that they sang the Psalms together all the time. The Psalms are actually songs. And just think about it this way. If you grew up in church, how many hymns do you know from heart just by singing them over and over again? Imagine singing the Psalms over and over again, which are the pure word of God. You'd learn a lot of them pretty quickly. 
In addition to that, imagine families around the dinner table, probably quoting what they've heard, singing together what they've heard, so that the little ones could learn them from memory. In a context like that, I think this is the only possible way for them to store up the word in the heart that they might not sin against God. And like we're saying here, what we're talking about is the key to fighting sin successfully. You want to fight sin successfully, the secret is not to have a Bible on your shelf somewhere. It's not to have the Bible on your phone, as good as that is. It's not to merely mindlessly read a Bible passage every morning. Robots can do that. No, key to fighting sin is hiding God's Word, treasuring God's Word in your hearts, so inundating your mind and your heart to the point that it changes the way that you think and act and feel and behave. That's the key to fighting sin. What I'm about to say might sound harsh, but I do believe that the reason why so many of us keep falling into the same old sins over and over and over again is because we're not storing up God's Word in our hearts. We might be believers, we might be forgiven and reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus, but we're, frankly, far more interested in Netflix or NFL or video games or Wheel of Fortune or secular music than the Bible. And I want you to ask yourself, is that you? I mean, this just kind of comes to mind, but I'm afraid there might be some within the hearing of my voice who have more secular music lyrics memorized than Bible verses memorized. Is that you? Or more stats about the NFL memorized than Bible verses memorized. Is that you? If that's you, don't be surprised if you continually find yourself falling back into those old besetting sins time and time again. Don't be surprised if you keep finding yourself saying, the good that I want to do, I don't do. Instead, the evil that I hate is what I keep on doing. But this act of storing up the word in the heart, it keeps us from sin. And here's how I've seen it work in my life. And I'm only, you know, by the grace of God, speaking from my own experience here. But when you so fill your heart with Bible, God can, by his grace, bring verses to mind when you need them. I, don't, I, I, I tend to think it's the Holy Spirit in me. Maybe it's also our minds doing subconscious things. But verses will come to mind when you need them. But they can't come to mind when you need them if they're not there. You know, God can certainly do miracles, but miracles by definition are rare. And he's not going to put a verse in your brain that you haven't memorized previously. But when I've memorized these relevant verses on all these relevant temptations and topics, I'm in, I encounter the temptation, the verse comes to mind, and all of a sudden there's power there for me to put this into death, to turn from it. You know, so let's say again, how honest should I be? Let's say I'm watching the NFL, and, you know, they cut to the cheerleaders, and I'll be honest with you, I, part of me finds cheerleaders somewhat attractive. God in his mercy can bring to mind something like Ephesians 5.4, which says, let me see if I can quote it from memory. Do not be deceived. Um, no one who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, will inherit the kingdom of God. What that does, it awakens me, awakens me to the seriousness of this sin that I'm tempted to commit, which then motivates me to fight it and to flee from it. You follow me? God can do that with all the temptations that you encounter, but again, it can only happen if you've previously stored up the word in your mind. If the verses aren't there, they're, they're just not going to fall in when you need them. In addition to all of that, I do think that this act of storing up God's word in the heart is also an act of faith. It's an act of faith. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But here's what I do when I take the time and expend the energy to memorize the Bible. What am I doing? I'm confessing my own weakness. I'm confessing that my sin is my constant enemy. I'm confessing that the resources to fight that sin are not found within me, 
but are in the word? That's an act of faith I confess every time I store up the word of God. And we know that God loves to reward faith. Both of those at the same time are ways that God uses the word to help us kill sin. We're almost done, but let's consider one final truth from this passage. Consider with me lastly how storing up God's word now is essential for future victories over sin. How storing up God's word now is essential for future victories over sin. Now, in reality, this is simply the great conclusion of all that we've talked about this morning. Sin is coming, sin is coming for you. It is your greatest enemy. The ability to fight that sin is not found within you, but must be brought into your heart from the word of God. Storing up the word is essential. Therefore, the only wise thing to do, the only smart thing to do is what? Store up the word now so that when sin comes for me, I'm ready. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, a question I want to briefly consider here is, why is it that believers don't memorize God's word as we should? I mean, chances are, especially if you've grown up in church, everything that I've said to this point is not new. You've probably heard this in Awana. Why then is it that true Christians don't store up God's word in their hearts like they should and are therefore very weak and vulnerable to sin and temptation? Consequently, our good works do not shine before others and others do not give God glory. Why is that? Why is it that we engage in so many things which might be totally, you know, like free in Christ to do? They're, they're, they're not necessarily sinful, but they will do absolutely zero in helping us fight against sin. Why is that? I think there are several answers to this question. Sometimes it's that lie that I've mentioned a couple of times, that scripture memory is only for children. Uh, again, I don't know where this came from, but many of us think like, okay, yeah, scripture memory is great for the Iwana kids clubs and all of that, but I'm mature, I'm past that, I don't need that simple stuff. I don't know where that, I, well, I do know where that came from. It came from the devil. And, and we need to call a spade a spade and recognize that many of us have fallen for a demonic lie and, and renounce that. I think another reason why people don't memorize scripture is because of laziness. Plain old simple laziness. We're going to talk about this more next week. Come back next week. I'm going to try and make this as practical as possible. I'm going to try and lay out the plan that I use for memorizing scripture. But having said all of that, scripture memory is, you know, it's, it's, it takes more work than, say, watching Netflix. And it's not as, say, pleasurable as eating ice cream. Therefore, because of that, a lot of us avoid it. But with all those caveats, what is that other than just old laziness? For a lot of people, it's excessive busyness. Excessive busyness. They've got too much going on in their lives. Uh, you know, they, they, they've got, you know, soccer and, and bowling and school and work and, you know, a zillion other things, which, again, none of these things are necessarily wrong, but they've so filled their schedule that they don't have any time at all to memorize Scripture. Though, admittedly, just five minutes a day could change your life. For others, it's pride. Pride. I actually think this is the number one reason believers avoid the Bible. Pride. They really don't believe deep down that they're weak. They really don't believe deep down that they need help. They think they can fight sin in their own strength, that they're strong and confident. But again, what is that other than pride? And the last reason that people avoid memorizing Scripture, and this might be the scariest of them all, unbelief. Unbelief. Frankly, you don't believe everything that I've said in the sermon up to this point. You don't really believe that the Bible is the living word of God. You really don't believe sin is coming for you. You really don't believe the gospel. And because of unbelief, you don't memorize the Bible. 
Whatever the reason, I hope you've seen that all of these reasons for not memorizing Scripture are just really bad, sinful excuses. More than that, they're demonic lies that Satan uses to keep us from that one source that will help us fight sin. And what you need to do is right now repent. If, I've been, if as I've been talking, you thought, you know, that's me. I thought that this was just for little kids. Or I've been proud and not really aware of my own weakness. Or I've been lazy and squandering all my time on Netflix or my phone. If that's the case, right now repent. Repent, turn from those lies, embrace the truth of Scripture, and repent and, and commit right now that by God's grace, I'm going to make Scripture memory a part of my life. As we think about this point, this last point, how storing the word now is essential for future victories over sin, the most powerful example of this that I came across in Scripture is actually the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, as odd as it sounds, Jesus took the time and put the work in to memorize the Word of God to overcome sin and devil, the devil's temptations. Now, having said that, you might think, that's crazy. Wasn't, isn't Jesus fully God? He is, but he's also fully human. And in his humanity, he had to learn the Bible. You know, baby Jesus was not born with the Bible already imprinted on his brain, but he actually had to learn it. This is why we read in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You remember when Jesus was 12, where was he? We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' childhood, but we do know that when he was 12, he was in the temple awing the teachers of the law with his learning. Luke 2.46, after three days they found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Jesus, even at the age of 12, is filling his heart, filling his mind with Scripture, memorizing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, memorizing the Bible, even as a young child. And why did he do that? He did that because he knew that at the age of 30, he'd begin his ministry. And during that ministry, he would be attacked at every turn by Satan. Tempted in the wilderness, tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, tempted even as he hung dying on the cross. So to prepare himself for that ministry and those temptations, he stored up God's word in his heart his entire life long, and then he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. I think Psalm 119 is a marvelous verse. I'd encourage you to memorize it. Maybe make it the first verse you memorize as part of your new commitment to Scripture memory. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We're almost done, but let me read Spurgeon's comments on this verse. I found these helpful. He said, here is the best thing, thy word, hidden in the best place in my heart, for the best of purposes, that I might not sin against thee. God's word is the best preventative against offending God, for it tells us his mind and will, and tends to bring our spirit into conformity with the divine spirit. No cure for sin in the life is equal to the word in the seed of life, which is the heart. There is no hiding from sin unless we hide the truth in our souls. Now, to conclude our time this morning, i got one simple question for you. One question, and we're done. But based on all that we've talked about, what's your plan? What is your plan? Sin is your constant enemy, always coming for you. So what is your plan for fighting that enemy? The resources to fight sin aren't found in your heart naturally. So what's your plan? The resources to fight sin are found in the Word of God. What is your plan? Storing up the word in your heart is the key to fighting sin. So what is your plan? And storing up the word now is essential for future victories over sin. So what is your plan? 
In a few minutes, we're all going to walk out those doors and return to our weekly life. And all week long, you'll have a thousand different decisions to make, most of which are little. Will I use this time to store up God's word, or will I use it to watch television? Will I use this time to store up God's word, or will I use it to play video games? Will I use this time to store up God's word, or will I use it to just kind of surf around on my phone and find out what's going on? All week long, we're going to face those decisions. And for some of us, we'll walk out of these doors and think, you know, that was an interesting sermon, but you won't do anything differently. You'll maintain your same old habits. If so, do not be surprised if you find yourself continually falling into those same old sins over and over and over again, which discourage, depress, and enslave you. You have been warned. But hopefully for others of you, you're motivated. You want to change. You're sick of being dominated by sin. You want to do things differently. So if that's you, I'm asking you, what is your plan? What is your plan for storing up the word of God in your heart and mind now so that you'll be victorious over Satan and his temptations when they inevitably come? What's your plan? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your living Powerful word. Lord, it's kind of overwhelming to think that you even gave us such a gift. Uh, we who deserve hell, we who have rejected you, we who um, defy you at every turn, you have given us your word. It is through your word that you give us life. It is through your word that you transform us. It's through your word that you preserve us. Thank you for such an incredible treasure. Lord, make us people who store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, help us to identify those particular passages that we need to address our particular temptations. Uh, give us the help and the discipline that we need to turn off the TV, turn off our phones, and to make even, even five minutes a day uh, to store up your word. And Lord, as that takes place, transform us, cause others to see our good works and to give you glory, and, and use us to be lights of the gospel here in this present evil age. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.